Downtown Productions in cooperation with Zone Radio presents Downtown, the podcast. From the historic Zone Radio studios, here's your host, Rich Kimball. It is Downtown, the podcast. Welcome in. Episode number 273. Rich Kimball here along with Carrie Haskell. We're brought to you every week by Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. We'll talk a little history and a little music on the program this week. Later on, talented musician and singer Karina Reichman discusses Joyride, her debut album, co-produced by Trey Anastasio of Fish. Up first, though, a great friend of the show. She is a historian at Yale University, author of a number of books, including The Field of Blood. She hosts the History Matters webcast every week and is the co-host of the Now and Then podcast with fellow historian Heather Cox Richardson. We had a good time talking with Dr. Joanne Freeman about the state of our union. Let's begin uh, with a topic that's uh, a topic that's in the news and also an anniversary Monday, the anniversary of the first Lincoln-Douglas debate. But historically speaking, and that was a senatorial debate, I believe, in 1858, but, but presidential debates, am I right that they're a, a relatively new phenomenon? Well, they are. They're, they're uh, a sort of mid to late 20th century phenomenon. And, you know, the age of the Lincoln-Douglas debate was an age when people had more than a three-minute attention span. So, <laughs> you know, you could, you could make these long speeches and people would stand in an audience if it were out in public and listen to it. And there were actual issues being discussed. You know, that, that was like uh, the, the mid-19th century was like the great age of oratory. So those debates were actually debates, whereas, you know, particularly once you have television come along, our debates, we could argue, you and I could talk about to what degree people are actually debating anything. And it's really more about tossing out talking points and looking good and sounding good and seeming on top of your game somehow than, than anything else. And I suppose, you know, a president is supposed to look like and act like a leader, I suppose, in some ways. But um, this is definitely, you know, what we we see now in debates on TV um, probably could be improved in a lot of ways. So without debates, without mass media as we know it today, largely newspapers were it uh, in the early days of the republic how did people position themselves to the average american as being worthy of their vote and and uh, fitting the mold of what we thought we might want in a president well um once you had real organized political parties and andrew jackson does that when he comes along in the first half of the 19th century then often it's just a matter of party and so you would have these conventions, and the conventions would pick a candidate, and then you would go with your party's candidate. But the end result of that is that sometimes you end up with a convention not being able to pick a candidate, and they pick someone who is not offensive to anybody, but who no one really knows. Actually, Franklin Pierce is a great example of this. Mm. When he ultimately gets picked to be the candidate um, for the Democrats, and I found when I was researching my most recent book in the newspaper, <laughs> there were people who didn't know his first name. <laughs> <laughs> and he had all kinds of names that I found in the newspapers. Or he had a number of shifting middle names. Franklin A. Pierce. No, it's Franklin F. Pierce. 
um, or actually even earlier than that regarding, um, I believe it's like maybe the election of 1796 or 1800, there's a choice made about who a, a candidate should be. I think in this case it was a, a Federalist, so that's uh, the Hamiltonian side of things. Uh, and someone says, yes, I'm going for our candidate, the Federalist candidate. John Adams and one of the Pinkneys. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Well, Franklin Pierce, of course, uh, there's a, a bit of a main connection there, is a, a graduate of Bates College. I think he might have gone to Bowdoin. Bowdoin. Oh, you're right. You're right. Yes. Yes. That's right. I knew it was a I knew it was a main school. Oh, for sure. Yeah. And and wasn't uh, if I remember the Pierce story, was it on the way to Washington to take office? When his son was killed and run over by a train? Oh, it's horrible. It's a horrible story. Yeah. Um, he and his, he wasn't on his way to Washington, but he was traveling just before he was going to take office. And there was a train accident that killed his son in a horrible kind of a way. So he takes office with this, you know, dark cloud over his presidency. And his wife partially blames him and the presidency for the loss of, of his son. So that was actually a horrible thing. Yikes. Uh, we're talking with Dr. Joanne Freeman here on Downtown. Uh, I know in your History Matters conversation today, uh, you talked about uh, what happened recently in Kansas with the police uh, going through the offices uh, of a newspaper out there and even into the home of, of the publisher of the newspaper. This is, uh, for anybody who values the Constitution and the First Amendment, this is pretty frightening stuff. It is very frightening stuff, and I'll, I'll only flesh out what you just said. I do a live webcast every Friday morning at 10 o'clock Eastern time called History Matters, and so does coffee. Um, and indeed, today, I did talk about what went on in Kansas with the Marion County record um, being invaded, basically, searched uh, in a surprise search by the police and their computers and things um, seized and, and taken away. It's shocking because, you know, it, it does something that I think we're watching happen in a lot of different ways right now. And I'll throw in here um, uh, book banning laws that don't really define what books are banned um, or uh, things that can't be taught but don't really define things that can't be taught. In one way or another, these are all meant to be intimidation or threats. They're meant to make people think twice before standing up against whoever's inflicting these things. So, you know, the people who were raiding and the, the newspaper office and seizing things, supposedly that newspaper is a feisty newspaper that is very opinionated. So one could certainly see that one of the messages sent by that was, yeah, okay, we'll teach you to do something we don't like. Here you go. Now, what's interesting about that is there's been a big response, right, of the very sort mm. that you said which is people saying, whoa, the police, like, jumping into a newspaper's office and seizing things? Like, really? That's hardly free speech. That's hardly a free press. I was speaking this morning about um, the sacking of Lawrence, Kansas, um, in the 1850s when newspapers were destroyed and Lawrence, Kansas was savaged in the debate over whether Kansas would be a free state or a slave state. And that caused the same response in which people said, whoa, wait a minute, what what just happened there? So I suppose maybe it's a little reassuring that you actually can still cross lines and people will actually say something. 
Yeah, well, it, it's good to see that because, uh, as, as you mentioned, it's when it comes to the banning of books, it, it goes beyond buying books. It goes beyond libraries. It has extended into the world of education, uh, college education, of course, but public schools around the country. And it, it's been interesting as, as an educator here to watch the mode of attack that the right has used, which is, I think, to realize that that school boards might be the easiest way to gain ground because those are often uh, not terribly hotly contested seats. You don't need a lot of votes to become a member of a school board around the country. Right. And so on the one hand, that's easy to do. And then add to that the fact that um, a school board says, we don't want you teaching, let's say, critical race theory, but doesn't define what it is. So now every teacher is going to think, if I'm teaching about race, does this count as critical race theory? Because according to the government, I could get punished. Maybe I'm going to lose my job if I teach that sort of thing. So, yeah, it's people getting into the school board or people threatening or, or you know, taking advantage of school board meetings or people, for example, threatening people who are working at polling places, who are poll workers, um, all of these things. In one way or another, they're met meant to either frighten people enough to keep them away from getting in the way or intimidate people into silencing themselves and and stepping back. And, you know, I think it's easy to downplay what a threat, how how powerful that can be. But my last book, um, The Field of Blood, Violence in Congress and the Road to Civil War, talks about Southern members of Congress using threats of violence, real violence, but also threats of violence to keep people who oppose slavery down, to keep them quiet, to prevent them from standing up, to prevent them from saying anything anti-slavery in Congress. And that kind of thing works. If you're afraid you're going to get beaten or challenged to a duel for standing up and saying something, you're at least going to think twice. And we've seen uh, schools in our area, one, uh, one nearby, where I, I guess they viewed it as a compromise, but the school board said, well, if any students want to read any of these controversial books that are in the library, they will need to get permission from their parents to check out those books. Ugh. All right. Well, you know, one of the things that I always think about and what we're seeing right now is there's a certain group of people that decides that they're offended by something. Sometimes I don't even say why they're offended by it. They just declare a book horrible and out of bounds, and they might use words to pin to it, but it's not clear. Like, really, is this book sexual in any way? Unclear. But because they say they don't like it, that parent has a say. And the other parents, who would be perfectly fine with their child having access to all kinds of books, not sexual material, but just books that actually have very nothing wrong with them, they lose that access. So it's a small group of people making decisions for a big group of people. I, I, I'd like to maybe not always talk with you about a violence in our government, because I know that's uh, that certainly was the topic of your last book. And I feel like, oh, we can't always we can't always ask Joanne about that. But but it keeps <laughs> coming up. And so uh, now we've got a, a certainly a unique situation in American history with the former president and his supporters making some pretty inflammatory comments. And already we've seen threats of violence against judges, uh, members of the grand jury, and the possibility of really uh, poisoning of the jury pool for a trial in the case of the Georgia indictments. Has there been anything 
like that with an elected official, obviously not a president, in past history? Well, I mean, certainly in a general kind of a way, there were threats aplenty being tossed out by, uh, like I said, sometimes members of Congress. But what we see now is kind of an organized plot with a former president egging it on, um, threatening officials in advance of what ultimately will be probably a trial of some kind. And it, it, as you said right in the middle of your question, we haven't had a president do this before. And there you have the rub, because we don't have anything to compare it to. And we all have a sort of gut feeling that that's not right, that that's intimidating a jury, that that's finding a way to have an impact on a trial in a way that is not how the rule of law works. But then the bigger question is, what do we do about that? Mm. And that's, you know, again and again and again, we come up against these violations, sometimes of laws, sometimes just of norms. And then we have to, particularly in the case of a norm violated, like the police force entering a newspaper office or like a former president threatening judges before a trial, big question. What do you do? How do you know what to do? And what's really interesting about that to me, other than the fact that um, we're all sort of sitting here in the midst of all this anxiety, but as a historian, what's interesting to me about that is that I study early America, and that's a period in which everything was being done for the first time. And I used to try and create for myself what it what might have felt like to be in government in some way in the 1790s and Every time something happens, some decision has to be made. Everyone has to state, and they would talk about what do we do? Do we stand? Do we sit? Should we be in one room? Should we be in two rooms? How, you know, what are the rules? <laughs> and they had huge anxiety about this because they assumed if they made the wrong decision, the entire government might fall. And that, like, colors the whole beginning of American history. But now, in a way, we have echoes of that where sometimes we don't know what is going to happen or what should happen. And I guess I would say I feel a kind of empathy for the people I write about in a different kind of a way now. So I'd like you to maybe project 30, 40 years into the future uh, for historians of, uh, oh, let's say the the 2050s. When the history is written of this time in American politics, American life, Obviously, it doesn't begin with the election of Donald Trump. When did the pendulum begin to swing in this direction? Well, right. It, it, and that's a really important point, because it's not as though Donald Trump came along and then suddenly all of this happened. And you can go back a number of decades to see this, you know, among others, Newt Gingrich and others sort of helping this mm. style of politics um, be born. But, you know, I was I was thinking about that today, this morning. And if I were a historian in the future, what are some of the things that I would grab at? And one of the things that came to me is just, you would see, as a historian, I'd be reading newspapers, and I, and you're lucky enough now to have things on social media and on TV and all kinds of ways in which you can get evidence. But by then, I would know what happened. And so there hmm. I would be as a historian thinking to myself, they really think that? <laughs> or did they, were they, what kind of a lie was that? You know, I would, you would be, I'm sure future historians will be wrestling with the fact that some of the decisions being made now either make no sense or so obviously meant for no good. And it, uh, 
they'll know, right? They'll be looking back in hindsight in ways that we can't. We're talking with Dr. Joanne Freeman here on Downtown, a co-host of the wonderful podcast Now and Then with our friend Heather Cox Richardson. And uh, on this week's show, a really fascinating discussion about women's sports, uh, the recent uh, controversy involving the Women's World Cup soccer team, reactions to that, and the whole idea that people are actually paying attention to women's sports in a way that we couldn't have envisioned half century ago. Right. And and so that's the, the, the upside, is that people are interested in women's sports, they're paying attention to women's sports. But of course, the other, or maybe not the other half, maybe we'll divide it in thirds. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not good at math. But um, another component of it is, in some cases, people are paying attention to women on sports teams to critique them in some way. You know, maybe they're dressing wrong or maybe they're too aggressive or maybe, you know, there are all kinds of ways in which women essentially get policed for what they do, just normal things that they would do when on a team, like pulling off your jersey and revealing your sports bra in victory at a time when women were just wearing sports bras to the gym. So it was nothing bad, but suddenly that becomes a debate. Ooh. Is that proper? I have to ask you about that, too, because I I didn't remember this when you brought it up in the podcast that they actually uh, must have been in the in the mid 70s, began selling sports bras that were marketed as Title Nine bras. Oh, there was a whole company called Title Nine. Wow. I believe it still exists. And yeah, they uh, they sell a lot of things, but they sell sports bras for sure. Title Nine bras. That is uh, that is amazing. <laughs> You know, what, what I find fascinating, too, is uh, in the midst of this discussion of women's sports, you get a lot of people of a certain political persuasion who have uh, who have created what I think is a non-issue, the idea that transgender athletes are taking opportunities away from women. What's ironic to me is that the people making this case most likely were or would have been opposed to Title IX. Oh, interesting. Yeah, no, that's probably true. Well, and it just you just suggested some of this is so clearly to score some kind of point rather than to be logical. You know, it's 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 meant to create a side in a political debate, but also a kind of cultural and social debate. I so I read this morning, and you can tell me if this makes sense because I don't know a lot about chess, but I read that now there's concern about trans gender, I'm going to get it wrong, women playing on the wrong team or men playing on the wrong team. They're worried about transgender people on, play, not even teams, playing chess with the wrong gender. Wow. wow. And my question is, why does gender mat- matter in chess? Maybe I'm missing something obvious here, but that feels to me so like a sort of thing you create when you really want something to exist. Oh, I, I think that's absolutely what it is, that they're fighting a they're fighting a battle that, that doesn't really exist out there. I mean, I do think we're at a time in, in our society where it, it might be wise to question some of the things that we do on a, on a gender-specific basis. I know, uh, for instance, in, in the world of, of theater and acting, they've talked about maybe we should get away from awards for actor or actress and just give out one award for the best performance regardless of gender. Well, it's always good to evaluate. You know, I mean, I'm I'm a political historian. I'm one for debate and compromise. And, you know, I think particularly at times of 
when change seems particularly striking and we're in one of those moments, sure, it makes sense to evaluate things, um, to come together with people who disagree and make some kind of decision. That decision will be hated by some people for sure, and it'll be controversial, but change can be good. And, and here's the thing. Here's the upside of living during a time of extreme change or extreme contingency, and that is we really don't know what's going to happen. So in some ways, anything can happen. And there are two sides to that. On the one hand, you could say, oh, boy, something really bad could happen because we just don't know. And this is a time of extreme change. But on the other side, you can say, oh, positive change is actually really possible if we're at a moment of change. And I think a lot of people miss the second half of that equation, Mm. that it's not all doom and gloom. There's certainly doom and gloom. But that at this kind of a moment, people can come together and push for positive change and that they shouldn't surrender to what might seem like the fate and just happens to be the direction that things are pushing right now. So can we find any guidance from history in where we go from here? There will be a a time, I'm sure, I hope, when we don't talk about the former president every day, but there remains a percentage of Americans who believe at least some of what he has said over the last several years. I think that I think that number, I hope that number is less than than we sometimes hear. And a lot of it is because of political expedience. But are there lessons from history, maybe in the post-Civil War period, of how the majority works around a minority of people who have an alternate reality? Right. Um, and, you know, that's I've, I've written a lot about the 1850s which leads right into the Civil War, and many people, including me um, in op-eds, have said, wow, this really echoes a lot with the 1850s, which does not mean I think we're going to have a Civil War. But certainly post-war, you had a moment when people were still, even before Reconstruction, you had a moment when people were still um, not sure if or how they would be able to come together. Um, you had, you know, what one might call unreconstructed Southerners mm. who were still adamantly right where they were before. Um, it's not an easy process of bringing people together. Um, but, you know, in some cases, for some people, and this happens earlier in history, too, sometimes, particularly after something really savage or, or violent or nasty or just a long period of upset, people get tired of it. People can see beyond it. People want something better. They want something more. And, you know, I, I'm not saying we have to go through a civil war for people to realize, oh, darn, I think I'm over this now. But I do think more and more and more people are becoming and will be becoming tired of all of the division and all of the extremism and all of the ways in which people are threatening other people. I, as I'm a historian, so I look back, not forward. But it's a really good question as to down the pike, not maybe not that far down the pike. What will Americans do? How will they come together? And particularly young people, how will people come together and produce positive change? That's the question right there. All right, I have to ask about some some really important things. How is Newbie the history bird? (laughs) (laughs) Newbie the history bird. Oh, I love that you asked that question. Newbie the history bird is my parakeet um, who was found in Central Park during the pandemic. So he's my pandemic bird, and I think he's the world's only history bird <laughs> who can actually say, 
I'm a history bird, so he's talented. Um, he is good. He actually partakes sometimes in my podcast and webcast by banging his bell very loudly or squawking. So he, he's a, a ham. He, he has things to say about history, too. Oh, I've heard him weighing in, yes, and it's clear when he wants to know that uh, he has something to say, and I appreciate that. I will, I will pass this along to him. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I was wondering about this. Is there, because I know you love you love Broadway shows, you love musicals. Is there, a, maybe it's 1776, which we've talked about before. Is there a, a cast recording that you turn to uh, in, in moments when you, you need that escape from the present day? Oh, wow. That's a tough one. Um, I, I would say now there's not a single one that I turn to. I just love cast recordings, truly. But when I was a kid, it was Man of La Mancha oh. that I always turned to. And I think it was partly because it was this person who was sort of trying, reaching out for, you know, the unreachable star, you know, reaching for good things. And I wanted to know that story. Although, to tell you the truth, um, when I asked my father when he was playing, the cast recording, and I heard it for the first time. I said, what is this about? And he said, it's a man who's trying to right all the wrongs. And I thought my father meant write them down. And I thought, <laughs> it's going to take a really long time. <laughs> <laughs> it was, uh, I take it as a, a great, uh, more than just coincidence the other day when we were locking in a time for our conversation today. Uh, we were actually re-airing at that moment our conversation from a few years ago with William Daniels, who, uh, Daniels, who played John Adams oh. in 1776. Wow. Well, he's a great favorite, and, and 1776 is one of the things that led to my becoming a historian. And actually, you know, it's a good thing to think about because um, that was the bicentennial, and I was inspired by the bicentennial, and I was reading, I was a kid, but I was reading biographies of people from the founding period, and my brothers and I, love that cast recording so much and then ultimately the movie that we essentially memorized the entire thing and my parents had to play it on their eight-track tape player in the car <laughs> anytime we went on a trip so i always feel a special fondness for william daniel since in, in a way you know he was part of the period that brought me took me a long time to figure out i was supposed to be a college professor in history a historian but he helped start the path I graduated in the bicentennial year, and my memory of that is that, uh, well, on the downside, uh, we had to wear red, white, and blue graduation gowns to celebrate. Oh, boy. Yeah, that was, <laughs> that was a little rough. But, but you know, then again, I, I just survived wearing a powder blue tux to the senior prom, so oh, maybe the gown wasn't so embarrassing after all. But I also, I made some pretty good money that year. Maybe it, uh, it might have led to this, this work in radio because I remember <laughs> winning a speech contest uh, that year, and the topic was what the bicentennial means to me. Oh, interesting. Interesting. So maybe it did help. And, and you know, we have the sesquicentennial coming up, the 250th anniversary, which, you know, is in the mix. So um, I think it'll be really interesting to see what how that develops, how it plays out, and what impact that might have on people. I'm hoping we still have a democracy by that uh, big anniversary. That would be yeah, great. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm hopeful, but the fact that we even have to say that makes me want to bang my head against the wall. <laughs> uh, it is always a delight to talk with you, Joanne. Thank you so much for making time for us this afternoon. I hope you have a great semester at school, and, and, and please do give our best to newbie. 
Oh, I will. Thank you so much for having me. I love being on your show. Dr. Joanne Freeman with us here on Downtown. A quick word from Cross Insurance. And when we return, musician and singer Karina Reichman. Since its founding in 1954, Cross Insurance has grown from a small family-owned agency that started in Bangor, Maine, into one of the largest super regional insurance agencies in New England. With the network of offices throughout New England, Cross Insurance works with top carriers to provide maximum value to you, your family, and your business. We are proud to be the official insurance broker of the New England Patriots and would welcome the chance to provide security for your team. For more information, visit CrossInsurance.com. Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. Summertime Groove, it's the title cut of the debut album from Karina Reichman, Joyride. Co-produced by Trey Anastasio of Fish. We had a chance to talk with Karina about uh, her career and the making of the album. Hey, Rich, how you doing? I am great. How are you this morning? I'm so fantastic. I can hardly contain myself. (laughs) It's really just out of control. Well, so glad to hear it and uh, so excited for you with the brand new album, Joyride. And I want to talk more about that, but I, I want to get some background information first. When did you pick up the bass for the first time? Oh, baby. Let me tell you about it, Rich. I was, uh, I was probably about 13 years old. You know, I started on guitar about 12 years old and became completely obsessed with it in almost a sick way. I really just put my blinders on for the rest of the world and everything about playing guitar. And I had my guitar friends and everybody sort of learned from each other. And we were trading licks and riffs and whatnot. And then before I knew it, I was in uh, a punk rock band called false arrest. And uh, I played guitar in that band, but then very shortly after I was suddenly, you know, it was the type of thing where I started just playing bass in three bands and guitar in three other bands, you know? So um, around that time I just started picking it up and it was a, it was a simultaneous guitar-based love affair, shall we say, and uh, kind of still played both, but really focused into the bass when I joined a gentleman named Marco Benevento's band when I was uh, towards the end of my NYU career, and that was sort of a big gig for me at the time, and I was like, okay, I'm a bassist. That's how that really developed. I was thinking about some of the uh, the great female bassists in rock music and people like, uh, well, the legendary Carol Kay, but Tina Weymouth, Kim Deal, so many others. Was there was there one, a male or female bassist, that you uh, sort of latched onto as a role model? I mean, all the aforementioned, for sure. I mean, Tina Weymouth, it's, uh, it's almost too easy for people to draw comparisons between the two of us, you know, and uh, which I really appreciate. I mean, I wouldn't, I, there's, no one I'd rather be compared to in a lot of ways, you know? So Tina's huge, obviously Carol's huge. Um, Cliff Burton, Mm. Metallica, God rest his soul, you know, is just such a huge influence on me and very much, you know, every time I pick up a bass guitar, I feel like a Cliff riff comes out, you know, and that's just a huge part of me. Getty Lee from Rush, a huge one. John Paul Jones, Sting, 
in the sense of like, you know, both Sting and Getty Lee are, you know, singing bass players. And that's, you know, what I do as well. And it's not easy, you know? So it's, uh, I, I take a lot of inspiration from their, you know, their bass lines that they can also sing over somehow so effortlessly. So a lot of those, a lot of those. I mean, the list goes on, right? It's, you know, Bootsy Collins to Geezer Butler to Tina to, you know, you name it. You've described yourself as a punk rock metal kid. What kind of music did you listen to? Uh, what was played in your house when you were growing up? Well, you know, what was played in my house was was classical music. My parents are both academics. They both teach at Columbia. They're, uh, they're incredible, wonderful humans that are not at all, like all of my knowledge of, of rock and roll was self-taught, you know, and came from just a deep desire to learn and was certainly not played in my house at all. My dad listened to a lot of classical music while he wrote. He's a philosopher, writes books and gives lectures and things of that sort, you know. So uh, I love all that music, but my desire for, you know, kind of a sweeping knowledge of, you know, popular music from 1955 to the present was very much self motivated and uh you know i got all my my friends and all everybody that i surrounded myself with was interested in you know that type of music be it you know all 70s riff rock to you know an incredible amount of 90s influence that i have i love nine inch nails i love sex i love the Beastie Boys, I love morphine, I love soul coughing, et cetera, et cetera, you know, and then making its way up to the present. I love LCD Sound System and the AAS and the National and Crumb and Damon Paula and, you know, the list goes on and on. So that was all, uh, that's been an incredible life of discovery of, uh, of the music that's been so foundational to me. We're talking with Karina Reichman here on Downtown. Uh, you mentioned uh, joining up with Marco Benevetto's band when you were at NYU. Were you, were you in the Tisch School? I was at the Gallatin School of ah. Individualized Study. That's awesome. I, well, I, yeah. I work in arts education, so I'm a big proponent of that. What did that do for you? You know, it did it did a lot for me in a very untraditional way. You know, I'm, I'm born and raised in Manhattan. I didn't want to leave... Manhattan, I wanted to just go from uptown to downtown. You know, my parents are Columbia professors, but I was like, you know, NYU is cool. You know, like downtown is cool. That's where the music is. That's where everything happens. And so, you know, uh, my, my major, which at the School of Individualized Study, you can name your major and take the classes that you need to take to, you know, fulfill it. And I called mine Invention and Distribution in contemporary music. And uh, that was really wild and awesome. And they allowed me to intern and they allowed me to tour and they allowed me to do all these incredible things that I feel like a more rigid, archaic school would have had absolutely no time for. So they, they really fostered my career in a huge way. All right. How did uh, Trey Anastasio come into your orbit? Trey Anastasio came into my orbit because um, I went to middle school with his daughter. So originally, I was just a friend of the family for for many years, and I had absolutely no idea that he played in a band at all. <laughs> and uh, and then many years later, you know, we've of course stayed in touch and whatnot. But then it was at the Peach Music Festival in Scranton, Pennsylvania, in 2021. We ran into each other, 
after, you know, there was, that was like a post pandemic coming out party, you know, for, for all of us musicians and we saw each other and I had no idea that he had kept tabs on what I was up to musically the way that he had, but he was naming all my songs by name to me. And he was saying how proud he was. And then we started talking about my debut record. He took an incredible interest in being a part of it. And then next thing you know, he's playing guitar on five of the nine songs and he's co-producing the whole thing and giving me the barn to work out of his, you know, magical studio that he uh, has had in Vermont since, you know, the late nineties. And I'm flabbergasted at the care and consideration he's taken into making this record what it is. Well, uh, the title cut has uh, been released, and it is just, it's a perfect slice of summer. I love Joyride. I'm so glad you do. Thank you so much. And the video is great, too. Uh, who who produced and directed that? Oh, that is uh, a very special shout-out to a gentleman named Charlie Chalkin, C-H-A-L-K-I-N, Chalkin Creative. Charlie made the No Occasion music video many years ago, or two years ago. And, uh, and he made the Joyride music video, and we actually just shot uh, another music video for another tune on the record that uh, will remain nameless for now, but he is responsible for so much of my visual world. And he actually just shot a whole documentary series on me, on the, uh, the making of the record and, and beyond. He's been following me around for quite a few years now, and it's, it's a joy to work with him. And uh, yeah, the Joyride music video, man. Not, uh, you know, don't try this at home, kids. <laughs> <laughs> well, the album is terrific, and uh, Joyride, the title cut, is a blast. But I also love uh, All That You Wanted and uh, and Skylark, Slowlark. That is just one cool tune. Thank you so much. I mean, you know, the way that uh, it's, it's super genre fluid and uh, varied throughout, while also, I think, sounding like one big body of work is... Uh, I'm glad it's resonating with people because it certainly has uh, been resonating with me for these past few years. I've been meticulously working on it. So thank you so much for saying so. Well, and everybody raves about your live performances. Uh, what is it about performing in front of an audience that, uh, that just brings you to well, even more life than right now, which is pretty awesome. <laughs> it's my favorite thing in the universe. It's like one of those things where I, I feel like, a lot of people don't even understand how much I enjoy performing on stage, but it's, it's, it's like my life's blood. It's my greatest addiction is being on stage and performing for people. I've always sort of been that way to the point where like when I was like a little kid and I would, you know, I'm from Manhattan. So we take elevators a lot. Anytime I was in an elevator, I immediately had an audience. Right. And if there were other people in the elevator, that was my captive audience. So I would perform for anybody who got into an elevator for me. And when I would take a taxi cab, boom, taxi driver, he's trapped, right? So I would perform for the taxi drivers. And I feel like it's just an innate, you know, some people have these proclivities towards things. And that, I think, is something that I've always had. And now to be able to, you know, perform my own music that I've written for people who know the words and are excited to see it. And it's, it's truly beyond description, the way I feel doing this. So I, I, I'm flabbergasted that I have any audience at all. It gives me the time of day to do what I love to this degree and in this way. So huge for me. Elevator. Elevator. That's a great name for a song. Oh, wait, you've done that already. Uh, You're going to be up here in Maine uh, in December at the Portland House of Music and Events on December 3rd. Will that be your first time playing here in Maine? 
It will not be. I have played many times in Maine, and I love playing in Portland. It's so much fun. I sold out uh, Sun Tiki Studios in Maine or in Portland last December. I have played Thompson Point a number of times, opening for the Ghost of Paul Revere. Oh, nice. And uh, I've played many times with Marco Benevento over the years. It is one of my favorite markets in the entire country. And I would like to give a large shout-out to the Eventide Oyster Company, it is my favorite restaurant in the country, and I am so excited to go back when we play Portland, Maine. And, uh, yeah, those tickets are already kind of almost gone, which is crazy because it's not until December. So Portland House of Music, beginning of December, get your tickets. It's going to be a party. I'm really looking forward to being back. That's awesome. Well, congratulations on the debut album. It's wonderful. Look forward to seeing the show in December. And thank you so much for making a little time for us today. Oh, my God. Thank you for making time for me. This has been a true delight. Thank you so much for the insightful and thoughtful question. That's Karina Reichman, the new album, Joyride, available everywhere these days. Our thanks to Karina. Thanks to Yale historian Dr. Joanne Freeman. And, of course, thanks to you for being with us this week on Downtown. Brought to you by Cross Insurance, where security meets strength.